Welcome to the Lee Schools TV podcast. I'm Adam Wright. Joining us today is Dr. Charles O'Connor, science teacher and environmental education coordinator at Gulf Middle School, my alma mater. Charles, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Adam. So you have been teaching middle school science for 24 years. Seems like it, yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, and Dr. Charles O'Connor, is it a PhD? Or? No, I'm a retired physician. Okay, all right. Chiropractic. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about that a little bit. So you, uh, well, first of all, you're a Golden Apple winner. You won the Golden Apple in 2012. Science Teacher of the Year in 2013. Environmental Education Teacher of the Year 2008. But before you got into teaching, you had quite, you went through quite a few career changes, right? Can you tell me a little bit about your, your, your past? Sure. Well, it seems like I've been working all my life, and some of the jobs are very pleasant. But my first corporate job, I guess, was with Channel 2 when I was in high school, and I came on as a janitor. So I was at Bishop Rowe and doing janitorial work in the afternoons and worked my way up to a videotape editor and then studio head and then finally directing 6 and 11 o'clock news in high school. And I continued that going into broadcasting. I got tired of broadcasting in general and started a photography business. And I'm not much of a businessman. I don't like to sell or convince people. So I folded that up and went to chiropractic school, got my doctorate, um, came out and uh, changed to uh, children's counseling. Really, I felt like I was having a better impact. And when that nonprofit business folded, I went into teaching. So, and there's a few other odd jobs in between, but I've been teaching most of my career, I'd say. So you might notice if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube that we've got some skulls and some fossils on That's the table. Right. So you have been uh, fossil hunting for more than 50 years, right? I calculated this morning probably 60 years. Growing 60. up in Tampa, they had shark's teeth in the sides of the uh, cement walls of the ditches, and I think Back then, I started prying them out with a hammer and a screwdriver, so it's been a, quite a while. Yeah, so you brought some some items with you to show and, and talk about. Sure. So if you're just listening to the audio version of the podcast, I encourage you to, to check out the Facebook or YouTube video version because this is some really cool stuff that you brought with you. So I let's just go ahead and, and dig into it, I guess you could say. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, what is the first item that you'd want to talk about? Um, well, first I should say that if you're interested in fossiling, uh, you can join a fossil club. Also, uh, save your specimens until you find a book or somebody knowledgeable. So don't throw anything away. Um, find out what it is. So it's a, it's a occupation. It's a, past, a pastime. We're always learning. And you are maybe the very first person to see some of these treasures. Uh, here's one. Uh, most of these I found in the Peace River, the fossils. Um, everyone knows what a mammoth is from Ice Age. We had some of the largest mammoths in the world here. We had Colombian mammoths, and this is one tooth. That's a mammoth tooth. Most of one tooth is missing a few plates here, and this is the chewing surface here. And if this animal was alive, it'd be positioned up in here. And they ate grass, which is very abrasive, and this tooth would have worn all the way down. But this was the final tooth of a set of six. They went through six sets, and after this worn down, that animal would have died just like grandma and grandpa and you and I, once we wear our teeth out, we don't have Metamucil or any of the... Uh, so you, you personally dug that out? Yeah. So it was and under you, a foot of... Yeah, tell me where you found it. Under a foot of sand. I found it next to this cabbage palm tree with a vulture circling overhead. I found it in the Peace River. Yeah. That site has been <laughs> explored because I went back every day for... Every weekend for about a year. But um, under a foot of sand, and I saw one patch... And people were really good at forming search images. So once I saw that little pattern, I knew what it was, and I 
pulled it out, and subsequently I found a bunch of uh, vertebrae and other teeth and so on. So you, Peace River, that's in Tampa? Peace River is a 100-mile river um, coming out near Punta Gorda okay, and yeah. starting up in the middle of the state. It's very yeah. fossiferous, very fossil-rich. Okay. And, and so you've been searching for fossils there f for 60 years? No. Oh. Um, probably I, probably about 20 years. I okay. hit it hard early in my career. I, yeah. I don't go there so much anymore. So we had, we had mammoths in Florida. I, I feel oh, like sure. a lot of people might not... Realize that. We had a couple kinds of mammoths in Florida. There are a lot of different kinds of mammoths, and they all died out about 10,000 years ago in mm. Florida. But we had, like I say, one of the largest Columbian mammoths mm. in Florida, and about that, 14 feet tall at the maximum. And that tooth, uh, ten, tooth, 10 pounds heavier? Yeah, probably so. That's a good guess. And yeah. they only had four teeth, and they had some more ready to come in and drop in. So these are really cool. After this tooth had worn down, there'd be a, a enzymes in the gum in the jaw that would dissolve the tooth and would fall out, leaving room for the next one to come in, almost like a conveyor belt. So it's a great system. We also had mastodons here. So a mastodon is a little bit smaller and only 10 feet, and uh, they lived in the forest. And you can see the difference in the tooth structure. So, so that's a tooth too? Yeah, they were browsers. They ate a lot of heavy twigs and young trees and so on. So this is a very rare type of mastodon, a gompeth here. Did you find that in the Peace River as well? I did. I found yeah. about four or five of these on one snorkeling trip, and it's a beautiful specimen, river polished. So are you, when you, do you go searching specifically for these, or you just get lucky and find them? Does it take a long time to, to happen upon one of these things? Both. Yeah. So uh, the more dirt you move, the more you'll find. So I have a big screen, and a lot of times I just uh, snorkel, and I fan the ground, I raccoon the uh, surface, the sandy surface, and then the, the flow of the water will carry the sand and the mud away. But you have to spend a lot of time. But again, if you join a club or read a few books, you can kind of spot geologically maybe the more um, prominent, more promising sites. Mm. Sure. Do you, do you do this by yourself? Do you go with a, a oh, small group? Both. Yeah. Can we see that mastodon tooth yeah, sure. one more time? Um, Okay, so you were you said a little bit, but what's the difference between a mastodon and a mammoth? Obviously, size. Well, size and diet. Because so, I know mastodon is, I, when I think of mastodon, I think of the Black Power Ranger. I think he morphed into <laughs> a mastodon, and there's a heavy metal band mastodon too. Oh, I think. Golly, so you're <laughs> in areas I don't know about. We'll have to interview you next. But uh, a mammoth, uh, you've seen it in the cartoons. They have big, long, curvy yeah. tusks, so they curve down and curve up and in. Very tall, and they lived in the grasslands, tundra. So they ate a lot of grass, and grass has silica, very abrasive, so it wears itself down. These guys were a little smaller, maybe eight, nine feet, and so they lived in the forest, and they were browsers, mm -hmm. not grazers, and they pulled down branches and twigs, and you can see how much more robust uh, their tooth structure is, which is where they get their name, mast. Mm, okay, and, that, and that's about how old? This one's probably uh, anywhere from two to five million. Um, they disappeared around that time. So Peace River is good because it cuts through so many strata of rock that you have a tumbling of uh, fossils that may be five and six million years old to 10,000 years old. Wow. Um, okay, so what else? You've got some skulls or um, sure. other now, things you want to... If you're really uh, interested in, in the types of animals we used to have here, we had, believe it or not, we had rhinoceros here in Florida. 
Get out. Two kinds of rhinos, and they were kind of like hippos. They lived in the water. They really didn't have a horn. So those but, are rhino uh, teeth? These are rhino teeth. It's like a W. I mean, that's the complete tooth. It's beautiful. And once you feel a rhino tooth, the texture on it is like nothing else. It's just beautiful. Yeah, so smooth. You could close your eyes and feel one of these fossils and know that you have a rhino tooth in your hand. We had uh, dire wolves. You've probably seen those before. Dire wolf? About like the size Game of, of Thrones? Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> was that? Is that a dire wolf? I think so. Yeah, they were small. That's what they called that. them in the show. Yeah, yeah about the size of a wolf. So what's a, di- so what's a dire wolf? What's the difference between a dire wolf and a Well, dire, wolf? you know, means um, threatening yeah. and important and strong. So they're about the size of a, one of our largest wolves today. I think gray wolf. Yeah, okay. Uh, but they're gone too, 10,000 years ago. Rhinos disappeared about 5 million years ago. Uh, from Florida. Saber cats. Okay. Um, from United States, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. During gotcha. the last great extinction. Yeah, I mean, I had no idea that there were ever rhinos in Florida or the United States. Oh, we had so many types of animals here. We had camels. Uh, here's a camel tooth. Really? There's a camel tooth here somewhere. We had camels. We had llamas. In fact, llamas, camels, and horses all developed in North America, spread to South America, and they died out here with the, uh, with the climate changes and also the coming of people. So people, they were, may have been already on their... Um, unstable ground, metaphorically speaking, but when people showed up, they really pushed them over. They overhunted, mm. for sure. So are these all from the Peace River? Have yeah. You, you've gotten them from... Short-faced bear. We had a bear here. On all fours, it would be five feet tall, looking you in the face. Uh, one of the largest land carnivores we ever had. But, you know, I think my favorite fossil I have found, besides gator, jaws, and so on, is a giant ground sloth. So... Yeah, and you brought a picture may, of this thing. Yeah, That's... so I didn't know what this was when I found it. I jumped over a phosphate mine fence years ago, back when it wasn't as dangerous as it is now. You know, now they'll lock you up. But this is the claw to a giant ground sloth. Yeah, just hold that up for so sure. Emily can get a good shot of it. Uh... That thing looks absolutely terrifying. So that's a saber-toothed tiger attacking it? Saber-toothed cat. Saber-toothed yeah. cat, okay. Uh-huh. So a uh, saber-toothed tiger is wrong. Yeah, it's not, a, supposed it's to not say a tiger that. or a lion. It's a, um, uh, yes, so it's, <laughs> there's, well, anyway, a, there's a difference The there. saber-toothed cat, that's a scary animal. Sure, and, and we had those here too. This picture's all wrong. Saber-toothed <laughs> thin, it really ambushed from the trees. Okay. They ambushed from the ground, yeah. but that's getting technical. But that thing it's attacking, that giant ground sloth? Right, and this ground sloth. looks like a bear on steroids or something. Yeah, well, it's, it's got a giraffe's tongue, you notice. Oh, yeah, so they yeah. pulled down branches, and they were mainly herbivores. Oh, okay. But, you know, looking at their teeth DNA... Uh, rather the isotopes. We can see they sometimes ate meat. They probably found a kill. Somebody else killed it, and they pushed the carnivore aside, and they had a little bit of meat. But they're all extinct now, too. They developed in South America, came up here, and they're extinct throughout the world. But we still have tree sloths. So that's a claw. This is a claw, medium-sized claw. They get about this long. That's a medium, okay. This is a medium, same species, megalonyx. Um, But anyway, um, we had those here. Wow. And Fort Myers, Cape Coral, all around. Get out. We had African lions here. Here's a, here's, I'm sorry, we had American lion. I was going to say, yeah. This African is an African lion. lion. And I, I brought a small skull. I've got a couple because it's easier. But it's a beautiful female, zoo animal, about 100 years old, beautiful dentition. But we had an African lion. I'm sorry, I keep saying African. We had an American lion here, <laughs> which was bigger than the African lion. Saber-toothed cats were twice as heavy as African lions. They were Extremely strong. Wow. And so the Peace River as well, you found no, this? No, this was a, um, somebody's collection that I bought. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Um, 
That we had. We is, had, that's amazing. We had condors here. We had swans. We had a terror bird, nine foot tall bird, uh, which used to be very fast, run down animals and just kill them with this huge beak, terror bird. So um, the one here was only maybe eight to nine feet tall. <laughs> so I, I see you've got two um, cat skulls. Yeah. The smaller one is a panther. This is a Florida panther. Can you put that next to sure. the lion skull just to give people an idea of the difference yeah. in size? Because it's a, the lion skull is about twice as big, three times as big. And as this the is panther. a very small lion skull oh. too. Um, but this is the Florida panther skull. Um, it's from FWC, Florida. Uh, and so they say this is the only one on loan. I'm the only person that's ever asked to borrow one. So it's on temporary loan for a few years. And I have other skulls in my classroom, dugong, black bear, dolphin, and so on, which are also on loan from the state. You're not allowed to own those endangered animals, mm. but you can borrow them. And I use this in the Florida panther class that I teach. This is, anyway, a four-year-old female. Um, guess what? How, guess how she got killed? You can probably guess pretty easily. Hit by a car? Hit by a car. Wow, yeah. yeah. I, when I was reporting at Wink, I you know, would report every now and then about... Panther deaths. They're, uh, am I correct? They're making somewhat of a comeback, or am I wrong on that? You At know, least they're not as they're not in as steep of a decline as they were a few years exactly. ago. Exactly. Okay. So at one point we thought there were maybe 25, 30 individuals left. Uh, you know, a few decades back. Now we think there's around 200. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is there's still not enough land. We yeah. have pretty much appropriated most of their land. One male panther needs uh, 200 square miles. A female needs 125 square miles. That's a lot of land. Mm -hmm. But when you protect the land, you support not only the panthers, you protect all the water uh, conservation areas, you protect all the other wildlife in the area. So um, I think it's a great idea to protect more land for panthers, and you're protecting all the other species underneath the panther as well. But we're building a lot of roads, we're building a lot of malls, you know the story. I, I grew up here, so I'm allowed to say that. I was going to ask, did you um, did you go to University of Florida? Because I know you've worked yeah, with them a lot. Okay, a couple times. All right, go Gators. Um, well, you you also teach you teach a class on the Florida Panther, right? That's right. Um, and you said that you use a Florida Panther kit. You're the only classroom in the county that uses this. What is yeah, that? Yeah. So when I was at the environmental ed education um, program with Lee County Schools, some of your viewers may remember that it used to be a very strong program. Uh, Cindy Bear, who is now my wife, um, hired me out of the classroom, and she developed this kit um, along with funding by FWC. And it's a really great kit, which we're resurrecting today and updating. So it has a class of skulls. It's got class sets of books, scat samples, which is poop, mm -hmm. washed panther poop. So the, we just did this a few weeks ago. The children can look at it. It's all protected and washed. They can see what the prey was, you know, where they're eating uh, bear or not bear, but boar. But anyway, it has a complete set. And so it combines um, natural sciences, biology, reading, writing, activism. So it combines all the core subjects. It's wonderful. So we're resurrecting it. We're with FWC. We're um, updating the biology and improving everything about it. But right now, I'm the only Lee County school using it. Uh, so other than you know the numbers that you gave, about 200 estimated panthers um, still in Florida, and you gave the square mileage that they need um, anything else? What what are, what else should people know about the Florida panther? You know, why are they an important species to the state? That's a great question. Thank you. Well, uh, you should, if you're worried, you should know that Florida panthers have never attacked anybody in history. 
Now, western cougars will, and cougars and panthers are very similar. This is a distinct subspecies of cougars. So out west, you'll have them tracking you in the mountains, and they do attack and kill people, but not in Florida. Same with black bears, too. But more to, your, more to answer your question, they're an umbrella species. So if we protect, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, if we protect a top predator like this and the land it's on, we are also conserving the water resources, we're conserving the birds, we're conserving all the other species that are interlocked on that land. And that's the best way to really save what's left of Florida. And they're just, they're beautiful creatures too. Oh, they really are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, so you've not only been fossil hunting in the Peace River here in Florida, um, you've also worked with uh, UF, University of Florida scientists, right? And you've gone on some excavations in Panama? Yeah. So when I was at UF um, doing my undergraduate work in the 80s, um, they, there's a work program there, study work for students. So I heard about it. I went to the ichthyology department, which was uh, advertising for a student work study. And their job was to transfer fish out of 2,000 specimen jars from formaldehyde, which is toxic, to the new stuff, formalin, which is non-toxic. So I looked at it, and I said, you know, um, I'm really interested in fossils. <laughs> and I said, this doesn't appeal to me too much. <laughs> and they said, oh, go down the hall. So I went down the hall to the vertebrate paleontology range and got hired there and uh, really loved it. So I was cleaning and uh, assembling some of the fossils as an amateur and learned a lot. So since then, I've kept in contact. And my wife, Cindy Bear, manages the Calusa Heritage Trail on Pineland, the original Tampa site. Randell Research Center, which is a um, part of UF. So mm -hmm. between both of us, we've kept in contact with the museum. We volunteered to go down to Panama a few years ago, and the new Panama locks were, well, the locks were being enlarged. You heard about that, new excavations. Mm -hmm. So we went down there and worked with paleontologists studying that area as a shark nursery. And then I, went, I was hired twice more to come back and be an educator at Liaison because we were bringing teachers from the United States and showing them how to um, integrate science with the classroom and, you know, natural enthusiasm. So it's been great. And since then, we've gone around the state to other sites, too. And so when you, you've been to Panama a few times, mm -hmm. and you did some, you took part in some paleo digs? Yeah, sure. What, what's a paleo dig? Well, paleontology, actually da Vinci, um, was the father of paleontology, Leonardo da Vinci. Um, so it's a study of ancient life, things that used to be alive and no longer are. And we had special access to restricted Panama Canal zones where they were excavating. And you had to go in quickly because down there, the heat and the well, everything just grew up really quickly. So we went in and we were looking for um, here's what we were looking for. It's really interesting. We were looking for the migration of animals from North America to South America and vice versa because the continents used to be separated, North and South, mm -hmm. and they formed, they connected about two, three million years ago. And so we were looking for those transitional species. So it was very exciting, something you could really picture too. What kind of species? Well, we found a um, um, new species of river dolphin, and I sent you some pictures of that. Mm -hmm. They found monkeys uh, coming across about 12 million years ago. And they're, and they're not sure how some of these species made it across before the continents were connected. Floating rafts of vegetation, islands that d appeared and disappeared depending on tectonic activity. So it's all still mysterious. But mainly they're looking for sharks and mammals. So when you, when you go on a dig like this, and you, so you're searching for these fossils, these remains that are 
hundreds of thousands, millions of years old sometimes. Uh, Obviously, you know, you've done your research, you know, kind of the general location of where they might be, but, you know, they're under, deep underground, buried. How do you go about kind of pinpointing the location or is it a lot of guesswork? Uh, And then when you, when you come upon one, what's the process like of digging it up and preserving it and excavating it and all that? That's a great question. You're like a professional <laughs> interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the um, investigation of a new, the discovery of a new site can go several ways. There's a site in Williston near south of Gainesville. Just recently, a few years ago, a little granddaughter's looking, found bones, showed it to her grandmother who was with her. Now it's a major, it's one of the major uh, paleontological sites, recent, you know, Pleistocene in the nation. In Williston, you said? Williston, yeah. So they have found a lot of these gompotheres. They have found condor, saber-toothed cat, and it's it's, um, organized by UF, you know, the paleontology. But that was just serendipity. Other times, you look at the landforms and look at the geological history and you think that at a certain age, if you go down 30 feet, that you'll reach a strata that might be interesting. So there's different ways to do it. Uh, sometimes it's surface collecting, which is what we were doing. Um, but if you do find a skeleton or something fragile, you'll excavate around it and put plaster jackets on. You've seen that in the movies. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a lot of techniques to preserve it, to get it back into the lab so you can prep it. How long does that whole process take? Oh, it depends, depends on yeah. it depends on the size of the creature and yeah. the condition. Sure. Um, do you like? I is it a lot of guesswork, or I mean, do you do you often dig and don't find anything, and is it just kind of, um, you know, you just do so many that eventually you'll find something, or is it more um, scientific <laughs> than that? <laughs> Um, both. So you try not to waste your time on a site that may be barren. But, um, well, archaeology, anyway, you'll do test holes. You'll do boreholes. So you go down, say a house is coming in, and so you'll do a test borehole to look at the strata to see if um, any artifacts are coming up. And sometimes paleontology does the same thing. Um, but um, it, it helps to have a lot of manpower, person power, out there moving and digging. And, and a lot of stuff gets back sent back to the lab for ID and preparation. Maybe this is a dumb question, but what's the difference between paleontology and archaeology? No, it's not dumb at all. So paleontology, uh, let's uh, do it in the reverse. Archaeology is the study of um, artifacts left over by people. So tools, writing, buildings, and so on. So it's a study, it's a branch of anthropology, which is a study of man. Paleontology is a study of ancient life. So it may involve cavemen, but it extends to any kind of species, microbes even, fossil microbes, anything that used to be alive and is no longer here. And then a fossil can really, depending on the situation, can form pretty quickly. Um, a couple thousand years, a couple hundred years, it can start fossiling. Um, so you mentioned uh, Cindy Bear, who I yep. did not realize when I visited your classroom a few months ago. I did not realize that she was your wife. Right. Um, but she was there because UF and the school district of Lee County is doing this cool partnership where they're trying to get a scientist in every classroom. Right. Uh, and you were one of the first classrooms to uh, participate in that? I was or? the first one in Lee County. Yeah. In fact, I've had two visits now. I had another paleontologist come in who talked about megalodon sharks, right? And Victor Ooh. Thomas, Thompson rather, sorry, Victor. Um, he's one of the world experts on um, calculating the size of megalodon. Uh, he has been into private collections and looked at associated teeth, teeth from an animal that died 
at the site, and he's been able to calculate. The megalodon probably reached um, sizes up to about 60 feet. Strongest bite of any animal in history, 40,000 pound bite. So, um, yeah, so we were the first classroom, and I was in on the pilot <clears throat> um, study of... Well, you've got, so that's a megalodon yeah, this shark is from, tooth right there? Yeah, this is from Venice. I didn't find it. My friend found it. I have a, I have a big collection. I've just brought you in a few. I have a huge collection elsewhere, um, but this is a nice transportable megalodon. And you're looking at the back of the tooth here. Yeah. This is uh, pressed against the tongue. So it would have how many of those? It has a couple hundred of these. When we say 40,000 pound bite, 40,000 pounds of pressure per square inch, is that? Right. Yeah. Dang. So this is the back of the tooth. Here's the front of the tooth. If you're on, and this is the top tooth. If you're unlucky enough to be bitten, this is what you would see coming at you. So megalodons, of course, they are gone no matter which movies you see or which popular books you read. You mean the Meg? That's not The a, Meg, that's not Steve accurate. Alter, yeah. So... I mean, the megalodon, that, did that just eat anything and everything it wanted? Or did they have a specialized diet? Fish or, and yeah. marine mammals. Um, I find a lot of whale vertebrae and whale parts. And the first thing I do when I pick up a whale vertebra is look for bite marks. They're really common. And it doesn't have to be meg. I've got some bones back at the school with uh, meg bites, and they're really, they're really huge. But um, shark bites on fossilized whale bones are extremely common. So they ate whatever they wanted, pretty much. And where, sure. where was that discovered, you said? Um, this is from Venice, Venice off Venice yeah. Beach. And how old, roughly? Um, well, Megs disappeared, Megalodons disappeared uh, about two million years ago. And the site at Venice is anywhere from four to two, five to two million. So I'm thinking probably around three million. And they got, they got larger through time. Uh, do we know why they went extinct? We do have good speculation. Yeah. So they depended on coastal areas for uh, to give birth. They would come in, give birth, um, which is one reason Florida, you don't find a lot of big teeth, and there are much bigger teeth than this, because it was more of a nursery. Florida was kind of shallow back then. So those coastal areas disappeared with uh, North, and, North and South America joining the isthmus, so it affected the ocean currents, affected ocean waters, several factors, and their food supply disappeared too. Guess what appeared on the scene? Killer whales. Mm. So killer whales probably ate their babies. Hmm. So they ran out of food, the climate changed, the food supply disappeared, or changed rather. So they, they couldn't keep up, they had a massive diet. Oh, a darn shamu, always I know. mucking things up. Yeah. Uh, so 60 feet long? Yeah, maximum. How long is, or how big is a blue whale? Oh, I don't know. 50, I don't know. Okay, so 50 it's, feet, 60 feet. Yeah, okay. Wow. Um, anyway, going back to the scientists in every classroom. So Cindy Bear, your wife, she's a, she's a scientist. She uh, works at the Randall Research Center. Yeah, right? she manages the site, yeah. and and she's also a um, burrowing owl specialist. Yes, too. so she right. was in your class talking to your students about burrowing right. owls the day I went. And um, tell me a little bit more about the partnership with UF and why it's important to... Wow. You know, have a professional, full-time scientist, somebody who works in a specialized field, why it's important to get them in front of students and, and teach them things? I'd be happy to. <laughs> um, so this all goes back to Bruce McFadden, Dr. McFadden, who organized the trips to Panama, right? And so he, his idea is well, if we can get teachers in to see how scientists work and vice versa, scientists to know the structure of classrooms and what those teachers need, it'll be a much better fit to teach science throughout the world. 
And so he started this before Panama, I'm sure, but I was so impressed when I saw his work in Panama because he has such a vision. Well, he carried that vision over to um, scientists in every Florida school, and that's, we're not gonna get a scientist in every Florida school, but it's an outreach program where we do have uh, scientists coming in person or virtually or, or some way to get the students excited to see that um, it, she or he is just a person. Do you know when I first started teaching, or really not that long ago, um, I was talking about my neighbors. I have an oceanographer and I've got different neighbors. And they said, the students, eighth graders said, you know a scientist? <laughs> I said, yeah, most of my friends are scientists. They're just like you and me. So they don't realize that. They yeah. think it's a, in fact, I dress up at the beginning of every year with my white lab coat and I show them pictures of scientists from Panama and around the world who are young, Hispanic or whatever, and young. And yeah. I said, not all scientists are old white men, balding white men in yeah, lab coats. In lab coats. So we're trying to get them to uh, better identify and also, just as importantly, to really understand that science is a, um, is a very definite way of exploring the natural world using a systematic method. Mm. And it's not just, uh, oh, theories, you have a theory, it doesn't mean anything. So we try and instill an understanding and appreciation of science, because right now we're losing that at the government level mm. throughout the world. Mm -hmm. So we need good scientist citizens. Do you cover, in, in your class, do you cover the kind of full spectrum of science, you know, from biology to chemistry to in middle Astronomy, school, we do. Yeah. yeah, in middle school. So it changes year, every few years. They change depending on which textbook we select. But yes, they do. They they get exposed to all of it eventually. But you use the you use your fossils and your um, yeah shark teeth and stuff. You bring them in and use them in lessons in the classroom. right? Oh, I have the room um, surrounded with skulls. I have a huge skull collection, and I bring. In fact, I had fossils out today that I got this weekend. And I was showing the kids, and I bring enough back so that I can give them some too. And they really appreciate it. You know, there's something they can take home and, and show their parents and touch. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of my room is tactile. So it's not sitting down there and studying from a book. We go outside, we do nature observations. I tell them, you've been learning what other people discovered, and now it's time for you to go outside and do some simple observations. You know, you be the scientist. So I'm trying to get them engaged in a level that um, grabs their interest. Yeah. Uh, and they seem to like it. How big is your collection, do you think? Which one? Just oh, all, just all the skulls and fossils, every, everything you've got. How many pieces do you I've think got, total? I've got about 40 good skulls, you know, giraffe and um, just some big ones, <laughs> giraffe, zebra, camel. And I have a lot of little skulls, too, armadillo. And I used to carry a roadkill kitten back in my car. And so I would find, unfortunately, a dead animal, mm. and I would prepare the skull. So I have quite a few of those bobcats. And, mm. um, and as far as the fossils go, I have... Um, maybe a hundred nice meg teeth, and I have a lot of other fossils from many different species. You have a hundred teeth of just the megalodon? Nice ones. I mean, most of, most of what you find is broken. Yeah. So I give those away, um, but because there's not enough room. I mean, the, the more dirt you, like we said in the very beginning, the more dirt you move, the yeah. more you'll find, and most fossils are not in good condition when you find them. Mm. So to find something like this, which uh, my friend did, that's pretty good. Uh, so b before we go to the final five questions, uh, you also do a lot of work with the, the Six Mile Cypress Slough. Yeah. Uh, I actually proposed to my wife at the Six Mile Cypress Slough. Oh, so. how nice. What'd she <laughs> uh, say? <laughs> Uh, she thought long and hard about it, and she said yes. Um, but you you take students on a lot of wet walks, field trips to the slough, and you've I also do. helped done. You've done some preservation work, right? You've you helped save it from being logged. Uh, well, I used to help teach the Monday group, 
which yeah. was the Bill Hammond group from many years ago that um, activated the citizens to buy the SLU before it was logged again. So I was a teacher of that for a few years, and we're trying to get that program um, resurrected. High school students who meet every other Monday yeah. with a... Um, well, they're interested in ecology. Well, what, but, is, what is the SLU for people who do, aren't familiar with it? Okay, SLU, S-L-O-U-G-H. It's like a swamp, but it's fresh water, flowing fresh water. But you find the same plants and animals you would find in a swamp, but it's not icky. It's beautiful. I've, I've led probably uh, two or 300 wet walks through mm -hmm. there in 200 years, or twice, it's like 200 years, in about 20 years. And so it's, it's gorgeous. So if you go to Six Mile SLU, I can go to the Interpretive yeah. Center. And it's, it's in Fort Myers. It's in Fort Myers. Uh, just west of uh, Six Mile Cypress Daniels Parkway. And, yeah. Near Daniels and near I-75 mm -hmm. in Colonial. Yeah. <clears throat> but I used to do it professionally when I was east, with the school. East, I meant east, sorry. East. East of Six Mile Cypress. So I got started uh, professionally with the school district, and then I went on the board of Friends of Six Mile SLU, which is our advocacy group. Mm -hmm. So I lead uh, public walks during the wet season, August, September, October. And so I've done a lot of those on weekends. And then um, I still take my kids through. We, we, there's grants available, teachers, from Friends of Six Mile SLU to help you get a bus and um, help, you, help you get your kids to the SLU. And why is it important to preserve wow. land like that? Okay, so Florida, <clears throat> um, as a booming population, and believe it or not, we're running out of fresh water because we're pumping it out of ground for agriculture. Nestle's. Um, there's a lot of springs around here which are being pumped out for major conglomerates, but we're wasting water too, so we use it on agriculture. On lawns, I hate lawns. Those grasses are so thirsty and addicted to water, and they're addicted to um, insecticides and fertilizers. So anyway, the slough is a recharge area is what I'm saying. And it's also a natural place for uh, protected species. It's a place of beauty, but it does allow the water to percolate down and be re recharge or aquifer, which is pretty close to the surface here. So uh, we've destroyed most of the wetlands in Florida, and this is one of the remaining ones, and now we're building artificial marshes to recharge the water system. So that's just one way, one reason we should protect it. And <clears throat> I didn't go there, I don't remember, I don't think, as a field trip when I was a student, I remember going to the mud flats. Oh yeah. Um, but I mean, that's gotta be, I mean, I that was one of my favorite days of school ever was oh, going to the mud flats. And so, I mean, the, the students must be really excited when you get the chance to take them out there and do the wet walks, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of the mud flats, you know, uh, environmental ed department is doing that again. And also I'm involved with a Kea Costa, um, no child left on shore. Ecology Trip, which is a great name, and that's funded through um, Captiva Cruises and actually SCCF on Cannibal. And Sanibel, you can email me if you want more information. But we um, take the kids out to uh, Pine Island, and we take a boat and trawl to Keokasta, get out and tr uh, onto Keokasta. And most of these students have never been on a boat, much less know about the islands we have here or the marine ecology. It's a wonderful Saturday trip. So there's a lot to do in this area. If oh, you absolutely. Just open your eyes yeah. and ask the right people, you can make it happen. All right. Uh, okay, Charles, what is your favorite book? I would say 1491. And uh, have you heard of it? No, I have not. Okay. It's a wonderful book, and it explains what life was like here before European contact, which mm. is 1492. Yeah. So, um, actually, some of the largest cities on earth were in South America and Central America. There was a huge population here. It wasn't deserted. It was only deserted when the Europeans really showed up in mass mm -hmm. because of the diseases that preceded them, mm -hmm. killing 90% of the population of the indigenous peoples. 
but some of the most um, advanced people on Earth were in North and South America, and it does a good job of explaining it. And then 1493 is the consequences of that contact between the old world and the new world with tea and silver and how it changed the rest of the world. Mm. So wonderful book, 1491. Who's the author? You know. The author is, is Mann. Let's see, I wrote it down here. because um, Charles C. Mann, uh, okay. 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus. Cool. Uh, all right, what is your favorite movie or favorite TV show? Have you heard of Memento? I have, Christopher Nolan. That's right, 2000. Yeah. And um, some psychiatrists say that's the best representation in cinema of short-term memory loss because yeah. he would go 15 minutes, as you know, mm -hmm. and he'd lose it, and then the film proceeds with a black and white timeline and a color going in opposite directions. So you have to figure out why uh, he's trying to track the killers of his wife. Yeah. That's fascinating. I've seen it, I think, three times now. And I'm, and every time I'm still like trying to piece things yes, together. Right. It's, every time there's a new clue. Yeah. I think yeah. it's a masterpiece. It's one of my favorites too. as well. Uh, cool. Uh, and Guy Pierce is so good in that movie. Right. Um, okay. Favorite song or musical artist? I don't know. The, the band? I'm not... <laughs> A big one on music, actually. <laughs> the band? Like, yeah, seriously. Like a high school band? No, <laughs> the old band, you know. Um, um, up on Cripple Creek. called the band? They're called the band. Oh, okay. Up on right, Cripple sorry. Creek. Sorry, not familiar. The Long Black Veil? Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Okay. Science, favorite subject in school growing up, or was it something else? Oh, no, absolutely science. In yeah. fact, in eighth grade, I used to read so far ahead in the book, which wasn't hard to do, that he would have me, the eighth grade teacher, who was not a good science teacher, have me stand up and answer the questions because I was interested and he wasn't, I guess. <laughs> I was, back then, I was bringing stuff to school to show the kids, too. So I think I was born with that. I was gonna, so you were always urge. scientifically minded at a really young age? When did you realize how much yeah. you loved it? I as far as you as can I remember, yeah. to verbalize. Yeah. I just think we're in a really beautiful, natural... I mean, I think uh, nature and reality is really mesmerizing, and I like to understand it, how it happens, uh, what's... Yeah, I just like to understand it. So were you born and raised in Lee County? Tampa, but I moved Tampa. here pretty early. Okay. Uh, all right. Charles, if you could have dinner with anyone living or dead, who would it be and why? I had to think about that, and it had to be Leonardo da Vinci. Mm, that's a good and answer. And he was probably the most complete... Yeah, um, um, diverse, rather, the most diverse intellectual person ever of so many talents. I mentioned earlier he was a father of paleontology, also ichthyology, also archae um, architecture, and so many others. He was a master painter, master designer, and inventor, and it was a polymath. I think he was maybe the most remarkable person I can think of. Have you read a lot about him, I'm assuming? Not enough. No, yeah. Right. Is there anything, uh, any interesting fact about him that... I would like to know how his brain works. Same with Humboldt. I just finished a book on Humboldt. And, and um, some of these folks I would not like to meet, like Newton. You know, Newton was uh, very antisocial, very odd person. Yeah. But some of the others who are more socially adept, I'd like to just see how their brain works. Humboldt was amazing. Yeah. A lot of geniuses are strange people. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Dr. Charles O'Connor, science teacher at Gulf Middle School. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was really fun. Thanks for bringing your artifacts, your fossils and skulls to show us. It was really cool. Thank you, Adam. All right. And thank you for watching and listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>